listeners of Illusion to Temporal Discussion, the episode-by-episode nightmare retrospective podcast. I'm Martin Harder, and I'm... And I'm Martin O'Donnelly, and I think what Mr. H just said there is as true today as it was when it was first spoken. Today we're looking at Series 2, Episode 10, which was first broadcast on November the 7th, 1988. Enya was still Orinoco flowing all over the top of the charts, and a fish called Wanda was deservedly enjoying another week at the top of the box office. We've really kind of said all we can about both of them. There's not really much to add from last week, is there? Um, the uh, the clip of John Cleese doing a strip tease was still omnipresent all over the media, even by this late stage of 88. The Orinoco flow was quite a nice little, uh, would we call it a ballad? I'm not sure. I call it a piece of shit. I'm just really not a fan of Enya at all. And now time turns, the recording light burns, time out is gone, the podcast is on. Welcome watchers, stay a while and join our game of wit and guile. Tregard issues the challenge. Bold youngsters from your time pick up the gauntlet. Of course, you may not dare to, but others do. So let's find out how they're doing. Bold Neil and friends had dodged and dared to make the sword of legend theirs. But when a dwarf gave them a shovel, it got them in a frightful muddle. Their dungeoneer made Cedric red, so Cedric bumped him on the head. <laughs> now, Stuart's men from Leicestershire are using wit and conquering fear. The chalice is their dungeon quest, but first perhaps a game of chess. But on they went past talking wall, till now they're found in Lilith's thrall. Will there be bridge to step upon? Well, let's find out now. The quest. On. We'll begin with the dungeon ditty again. Dead and theirs, shovel and muddle. Not long, I'll give that bit a pass. Uh, red and head, yes, obviously. Leicestershire and fear. Uh, conquering fear was to take on a much more deeper meaning in later years, of course. Mm. Uh, quest and chess, wall and frawl, upon and on. Yeah, that's not terrible at all. That one definitely earns a pass. One of the better ones we've had recently. Recently, certainly. <laughs> Dead and theirs is, is, is the bit that lets down a little bit. Yeah. But, uh, you've forgotten it by the end of the ditty. We rejoined Stuart and the team, Neil, Craig and Neil, in Lilith's chamber. Stuart has just pulled the lever to make the causeway appear, much to Lilith's annoyance, and she is now demanding tribute. Now she always does. She's a magpie. Before I allow you to leave... You must present me with some lovely thing. Do you know what I'm thinking? I bet the contestants on the show have some really interesting anecdotes about each scene. I'd love to be able to hear a Dungeoneer's point of view. I bet they've got some brilliant stories. You really want to, because there is a way, you know. Is there? It, it can be done, yeah. Oh, okay. Have, have you not been watching the last 16 episodes of the series that we've been commentating on? Have you not looked at the way it's done? It's really simple. Watch this. Enter! Stranger. And name yourself, please. I'm Stuart Leatherland from Leicester. You sound like you've done this before, mate. You sound like a bit of a veteran. Where have we heard that name before, Stuart Leatherland? Hmm, I can't think. Yeah. Stuart actually contacted us on Twitter. Stuart, can you tell us a bit about your experiences on the show, maybe like the audition process and stuff? Well, the first time uh, I heard about the programme, it must have been before season one, Treyguard came onto the, uh, the presenter's room. I'm not sure who the presenter was, and explained that they're going to be this program and they wanted contestants. And at the time, I was a massive fan of Final Fantasy books 
and that sort of genre. So I thought, oh, that sounds great. So I tried to get a team together. I think I applied, but I don't think I heard anything back. I'd sort of arranged the team together, but never heard anything. So a bit disappointed. Then the series came on the TV and I loved it. We all did. And there was opportunity for series two. Did you have to reapply or did it just roll over to season two and it was your turn? No, it was an actual reapplication. You had to reapply. Okay. That was a bit rude of them, wasn't it? <laughs> oh dear. But between season one and two, I'd changed school. So the team before, my friends, were, mm. were like different friends. So I had to put together a different team. So we sent off our names on this application form. We're not really expecting anything again. But then we had a letter inviting us to a audition in Birmingham. We live in Leicester. Birmingham was the nearest audition place, I believe. So we all decided we should go for it. And the actual audition wasn't very complicated. I think there were two or three people behind the table. We went into a large meeting room. And they just asked us to demonstrate how we could move around some obstacles in a room. Manoeuvring practice. How well did you actually know the other guys on your team then, if it was after a change of school? Two of them were from my previous school. Two names. All right, all right. Greg, he was a new friend, but he was quite a good friend by this point. Did you decide that you were going to be the Dungeoneer, or was that decision made for you? Well, it was always my decision, to be honest. Mm. It was my team. I put it together. I applied. And it was my choice, and I thought he looked like the cool of old, to be honest. Mm. And there was another reason, which I'll get on to later. Okay. okay. Something to look forward to. So you're happy to join us for the rest of the episode, yeah? Yeah, love to sit on mate. Love to. Awesome. So uh, it's probably going to be a bit weird, because we'll probably be talking about you in the uh, third person quite a lot. <laughs> you don't mind people talking about you like you're not even there, do you? <laughs> <laughs> There you go, mate. Thanks. So, Stuart's advisors instruct him to offer Lilith the glove that he is carrying. This is well received by Lilith, and she lets Stuart pass. Her evil-sounding chuckle suggests that she knows what's lying in wait. Now, be gone through the serpent's mouth. Right, sidestep to the left, Stuart. Walk forward. Walk forward. Turn to your right. A little bit. Right, forward, forward. forward. As I said earlier, Lilith is a born magpie, so I'm, I'm always been slightly surprised that she didn't take offence at um, only receiving one glove rather than two. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's also, it's a glove. You know, she, you normally need to give her something made of gold. On this occasion, she'll take one glove. She must have been in an unbelievably good mood that, that day. Just, were you scared by her ranting at you, Stuart, or did it not really bother you? Was it water off a duck's back? Well, I don't know whether you noticed or not, but she, she appeared as I was pulling the lever. And it looks on screen like I'm having trouble with the lever. Actually, I crapped myself. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> she came in behind me. And, oh, I, t- I didn't know she was there. And what the hell? <laughs> Far scarier than being chased by the automaton, I imagine. <laughs> you see it on screen if you know what to look for. Also, uh, if you notice at the end, we were leaving through the mouth and the scene started to panic. I think it's because she was laughing and they thought she was going to pull the lever back on me. I was suspicious she might do that to you, just to speed you along a little bit. But you've got to remember, she's standing on the causeway as well, so it wouldn't be a very bright move on her part, would it? And what was Mary Miller like? Uh, Did you get to see her out of character or anything? No, I didn't, actually. The only person we saw out of character was Treyguard. It was on our first morning. Mm. We were shown around the place, and it was about lunchtime. So we all went into the canteen and stood in front of us in full costume 
of the food counter is Tregard. He wants to notice us looking at him. And he turned towards me and he said, don't worry, it's only a game. But then I replied, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so everybody in the canteen heard and they were laughing. So that's all break the ice, I think. That's Wonderful. No, it just seemed funny. Him stood there with his costume on and a yeah. plastic tray with a lasagna on it. <laughs> So that's the shield of justice, is it? How disappointing. Where am I? In a big room, there's a pendulum swinging backwards and forwards. There's three doors. Four. Four. There's a, a sort of imprint of a cup, golden cup. Oh, nasty. A new threat guards the great corridor of the catacomb. Careful, team. We don't want Stuart mashed. We've immediately got a slight um, issue with this next scene because for some reason, Treyguard says that it's the corridor of the catacombs. It clearly isn't. It's clearly the Hall of Spears, from as it was in season one, except the spears aren't appearing anymore. But it, it no longer stretches off into the distance. And secondly, the, it actually has a really credible threat um, in the shape of this pendulum thing, this morning star, it's called in the books, although it actually isn't the morning star, swinging backwards and forwards the length of the corridor. It's very unconvincing the way that the pendulum judders to a halt and just hangs there at the end of the corridor for about three or four seconds at a time before swinging again. I always assumed it was a mechanic. Thing. It could be. It could be. That's probably the best explanation. I think this room would have been a little bit more interesting if they hadn't put the um, the exit door immediately opposite Stuart. I think um, if they'd put it maybe the one at the far end, so they got to actually really risk getting hit by the pendulum, or even just having it being the side door in the distance. Because in the end, the solution here is literally walk forward. But it's like they'd come up with this room and hadn't had a chance mm. to use it and just decided to kind of mm. throw it in. Because it only happens once, doesn't it? It's seen again on the credits at the end of this episode, and that's it. And Stuart, your team is unique in that they got to be the only people to face this obstacle. Yeah. Talking about how easy the room was, I don't trust my team to trust me any further. I'm glad it's what it was. Your feeling is that if the exit had been positioned differently, you'd probably have lost. Yeah. But it would have been good to uh, see what animation that they used. I've always pictured it. Me spread eagled, arms and legs open, <laughs> and then being and then peeling off the ball. I don't know if you've ever played the Simpsons arcade game when you walk in front of a door and someone that opens it, they kind of splatter you. Your character kind of splats against the screen. One thing this scene is noticeable for is it actually includes an ooh nasty um, from Trey Guide. It's one that's often overlooked. It's actually the thing he says right at the beginning of his little uh, sequence. He says ooh nasty, and this is another one of those scenes where he really, really plays up the bad side. We wouldn't want Stuart mashed, would we? <laughs> yes, Trey Gard, you clearly would. <laughs> did you take offence at that when he when he did that, Stuart, or were, were you? Did you take it in your stride? No, nothing faced me, mate. No, I don't think I'd heard it to be honest. <laughs> All right, okay. At the end of the day, it's just another timing puzzle, really. And um, Stuart, you did really well. Yeah, was it was it a run really that I do, or was it more of a? It was just a rather brisk walk. There's always a danger of running too fast and hitting the wall. We have heard stories of that happening. Rather colourful stories about the language that some of the dungeoneers have used when they <laughs> when they collided <laughs> with solid objects that aren't visible on the chroma key. Did you have much contact with Tim Child himself? I think so he was there on the first day and showed us around told us where to go where to sit and a general overview of what we were going to do and then i don't think we saw him again until the end could be wrong where am i in a big room there's three doors one's got a keyhole in stuart enters a three-door chamber 
The door on the right is locked and Stuart has a key, so game logic dictates that this is the right door. However, the appearance of the automaton sends the advisors into panic mode and they all start shouting at once. Beware the mindless threat of the mechanical warrior. Right, go forward until we say stop. Carry on. Stop! Right, sidestep. Sidestep to the right. Right. Quick! Quick! Come on until we say stop. Right, stop! Stop! Move go to forward. left! Go forward! Go forward! Stop! That must be really confusing for you, Stuart. Yeah, there were a couple of times where I was thinking, oh, come on, lads, be quiet. I can't remember whose roles were which roles, but we did have set roles. It should have been just one person directing, but in the heat of the battle, I think everybody tries to chip in. Now, the team at this point looked to me like they're getting a little bit quarrelsome with each other. Were there any problems with arguments behind the scenes? Yeah, I think there were, because this was probably the third day we were away from home. We arrived in Norwich on the Monday, sat in the green room all day, most of Tuesday in the green room. I think we started the Tuesday afternoon, a couple of rooms. Getting a bit fed up with the sights of each other, maybe. By Wednesday afternoon, we were a few uh, needles between right. people. I imagine that probably happened with quite a lot of teams on Nightmare, but it, it doesn't always come across. But you could just feel that um, the pressure was just bringing out a few bad feelings. We've heard reports, haven't we, of teams actually getting into physical fights and coming back the next day with black eyes and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think there were words said between <laughs> scenes, but... <laughs> It never got as far as physical. Thank goodness. So they do manage to guide you out the room reasonably quickly and on to the next. Where am I? You're in a room, rock room, and it's got a well in the middle and there's food on the floor. Dun, 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 dun. You completed level one. Yay. That's more than the first couple of teams in Nightmare could say. I think that was our aim, to be honest. We would have loved to have won, obviously, but... We didn't want to be a first-level failure. Life force is low, and as you desperately try to retrieve the food that's on the floor in front of you, the automaton is still hot on your heels. Quick, run forwards. Stop. Go left. Right, sit down. Down. Pick it up. Right, walk forward. Until snakes stop. Stop. You're in a well. Get, get time into the well. Get into the, the well. Quick. And we get this lovely shot of the overhead of the well, which I absolutely love every time. When I go into the well, I don't want to ruin any illusions here, but it's not a real well. You're going to tell me Father Christmas doesn't exist next! We were told if we get to the well, to, uh, if you stand in it, it, it comes to our waist height. And they, so they said, just duck down to make it look like you're going down. I think what they do to produce the well effect here is actually the camera is zooming out. Um, and you're roughly staying still. They use a slide for that. I went on a slide. Oh, really? Oh, oh, wow. I wonder if that's the same slide where the dungeoneer appears in the monster's stomach. They often appear to slide down something to land on the stomach lining. I wonder if that's the same slide they're using there, then. Yeah, after the well room, they just took me aside and asked me to go down this slide, and they filmed it at an angle as if I was straight above. Then in the... Uh, so when, I, when I drop into the level two, I'm just actually jumping. <laughs> Where am I? You're in a big room. There's a box, a sort of box shape in front of him, and there's a monk. So here's a familiar start to level two. Stuart arrives in Cedric's chamber, but the monk seems oddly quiet today. Ah, we seem to have caught Cedric the mad monk in one of his famous socks. No telling how long it 
And what do you think you are doing? So, we meet at last, Stuart. And do you know who I am? Or perhaps, more importantly, what I am? Now, I seem to recall, I may, I may, my, my memory may be lying to me here, but I seem to recall when this was first broadcast, I knew immediately it was Mogdred, um, because he just looked too tall for Cedric. Yeah, he's a good half a foot taller, isn't he? Yeah, and he also doesn't have his trusty quarterstaff with him. I think I was suspicious immediately that it was Mogdred, thinking who else could be taller than Cedric, because Cedric's a pretty big bloke himself. Spider-Man! Look now at your meddlesome dungeon master. See how he shakes and struggles in my grip. The advisors turn to Treyguard and see he's doing his having a big poo acting again. Mogdred tells Stuart to forget his advisors and the dungeon master as they cannot help him now. Mogdred asks Stuart to pledge allegiance to him and although Stuart says nothing, one of the advisors very quietly says yes. Do you wish to serve me and secure your goal? Yes. And Mogdred seems to hear it and takes this as absolute a sense. Now, which advisor was that, Stuart? I think you need to fire them. I don't remember. I don't remember hearing that. He more or less whispers it, and I don't think the cameras are on them when he says it. So we can't figure out who it is. You said that I didn't say anything. And I said before, there was a reason I wanted to wear the helmet. I'm really quite shy and would try and avoid conversations with anybody. Uh... If I wear the helmet, I can just move here, move there, get through quite safely. So whenever I interact with anybody, you'll see this very, a very monosyllabic, yeah. No. Well, you obviously didn't realise that 30 years later you'd be talking your heart out about it. <laughs> oh, who <laughs> Changes to the technology, darling. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. actually, it's, it's interesting um, that you say that uh, you say all that because um, it was probably for the best for you that Mogdred, when he was asking you if you know who he is, uh, that he then ploughed immediately into the next line rather than waiting for your answer. I would have hated to have been in the previous quest who had to do a lot of talking, not the not directly previous. Do you mean Mark Team Four? He was chatting up monsters. I don't think I could have done that to be honest. What I'd say about this scene, though, um, and it's it's probably the most interesting scene of the episode, is it really underlines both how good John Woodnut was at playing the big bad, but at the same time also highlights limitations that he had. The first thing he says to you is, So we meet at last! That is one of the worst cliches in this kind of fiction, but he performs it so brilliantly that you don't notice it's a cliche at first. But at the same time, you've also, later in the conversation, after he's given you the power spell, he's um, he's talking up the, um, the joys of dark magic um, and stops playing the big bad there. And he starts trying to sound like a used car salesman. Listen to me carefully, Stuart, for I will prove that a bargain with me is a bargain for success. I will gift you, free and without ties, one of my most awesome spells. Its name is Power, and you may use it as often as you wish. You see, dark magic has no Petty restrictions, no hidden clauses, no unpleasant side effects. Use it well, Stuart, and grow powerful like your new master. 
I've just realized he's Emperor Palpatine. Yeah. He is a Sith. He's like, we meet at last. The circle is complete. And then unlimited power. Well, I, I think I think Palpatine stole that from Mugdred because you've got to remember that was Reve- <laughs> Revenge of the Sith was about 18 years after this. Um, yeah, it's, but it's it's set a long time ago yeah, in a galaxy far, far away. Alternative dimension somewhere far, far away. <laughs> uh, but he's, he's, uh, when he's not playing the big bad and he's trying to do anything slightly different, it, it's it just comes across as um, here as a, a used car salesman with a really, <laughs> a really, really unsuitable style of delivery. <laughs> just, you can see both the strengths of John Woodner and also the weaknesses in the, in this scene. Mm. I know this reflects badly on me, but I've only just realised in the last few days how big a deal John Woodnot actually is. Major theatre actor. There was a BBC production of Antigone that I recently found on YouTube and he's he's playing part of the chorus in that. And, and if the BBC want you to, to, to perform one of the classics, you've got to be a bloody good actor, is all I can say. I wouldn't say it's a bad reflection on you. I'd say but it's more a good reflection of how John Woodnot kind of blends into every role that he's ever played. I still remember him as the thin man from uh, The Boy From Space and I was terrified of him. Yeah, well that's what I saw the other day. Boy From Space is another Childhood memory, along with Nightmare. The Delta Ling film is quite amazing. But the thing most people remember him for, of course, is lots of appearances on Doctor Who, Terror of the Zygons, The Keeper of Traken. He was all over Doctor Who. Paul Merton did um, a sketch series in the early 90s, and uh, Woodnut was a regular guest performer on that as well. Oh, really? I remember the series. Um... Paul Merton, the series it was called, has really put some thought into that title. I noticed he was in the Harry Enfield sketch. And he was asked to wipe Kathy Burke's backside when she won the lottery. Oh, yes, that was him, wasn't it? Dave, pack my bags and wipe my bum. What, what, what? <laughs> now, that's a guy who was really dedicated to his duty. <laughs> that was a truly professional actor. I salute him. I don't have to pull up this. I was in Nightmare, you know. <laughs> Mogdred has given Stuart a power spell. He can use as many times as he like, apparently. Trigard suddenly begins to control and acts like me when I wake up after falling asleep in the middle of a film. Stop. Stop. What's going on? What happened? Trigard slowly uh, sort of remembers the presence of Mogdred and he asks the team if he said anything. And Advisor Neil tells him that Mogdred gave them a spell. He's gave us a spell. A spell? A spell? What spell? Power. Power. And then I like this. It's like it's oh, it's your it's your quest. It's your choice. It's like it's basically do what you want. I don't give a shit. No, no, what he's actually saying is by agreeing to become Darth Lever, <laughs> <laughs> you've you've just goblin horned up like a kipper, and something terrible will eventually happen to you sooner or later. But <laughs> hey, that's democracy for you. So anyway, Stuart, did you want to accept Mogdred's offer or didn't you? Let's have a confession from you. In that room at the time, I thought. No, we aren't better. It's not uh, like against the spirit of the show, isn't it? Exactly. Looking back now, I wish I had. You guessed another week, talk about left-handedness and being evil. That was Series 2, Episode 6, when we had Dr. Bianca Hatton. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm left-handed. So, so you should have done. <laughs> so, yeah, so you actually, you actually, your advisors set you on the correct path. Mm. So, all right, we're not trying to find out who it was to accuse him. We're now trying to find who it was to congratulate him. Stuart's advisors, if you are listening, please come forward. We want to give you a gift as a reward for your brilliant consistency. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm not in contact with them anymore. Oh, that's a shame. We all left and 
after college and move to different, different places. You never know, they might pick up on the reference to Nightmare and see it's you and think, oh my God, we'll be in this and we're slagging you all off like kippers. If I had to guess who said it, I'd say it was probably Neil or quite possibly Neil. You're really, really, really not hedging your bets in any way there, are you? <laughs> Said Martin to Martin. This is where we got the idea from for this podcast, you see. Um, it's actually from your quest. You had two people on it with the same name. <laughs> One of us renamed ourselves Martin to make it easier. Yeah, it was. You're more influential than you thought you were, Stuart. Greg led me side down, really. Yes, he was. Do you want to know what actually happened? I thought to myself, I want to do a podcast. It was originally going to be about kids' TV in general, but I decided to zero in on Nightmare because it's a specific interest. And I thought to myself, who do I know who knows a lot about Nightmare and loves the sound of his own voice? But unfortunately, he wasn't available, so he gave the part to me. <laughs> oh, those classics from 1952. I love them. I really do. I see. Well, it all sounds very unpleasant. You are obviously very lucky to survive. However, this is your adventure. And the use of gifts and spells is a matter of your choice. And with that, the team guide Stuart out. Where am I? You're in a room, Stuart, and there's stairs in front of you, and there's a table in the middle of the room, and there's one door. Back in the majestic level two clue room. Seriously, we, we love this clue room. There's a lot of architecture from the early years that I really missed in the later years. And um, this was right up amongst the best of them. It really, really is just such a haunting place. In season four, they change everything to photographs. And so the level two clue room just becomes this rather blank um, chamber in the middle of a real castle with no features in it. And I just think, mm. no, 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 no. The advisors guide Stuart down the stairs. And I feel like we have to ask Stuart, did they tell you to use the banister? I don't remember specifically saying that. I think they always told us to be careful of any steps. So maybe they told the team to take me to the banister. I was always wondering how much I could do by myself because wearing the helmet, you can still see items in the room. Because I could see the well, I could see the stairs. Yeah. So could I have just walked straight yeah. to the well? Could I have just gone downstairs straight? without being told. I was never sure whether to follow my team or just take initiative, whether that would break the illusion, I don't know. In some ways, actually, it would have reinforced the illusion because um, you're taking action yourself. But I think in the case of the banister, there were probably health and safety rules. We've seen teams absolutely barrel it down dead centre of the stairs. We have a theory that something actually happened that made them say, no, you have to use the banister. The team after me did that. I would suggest that they didn't tell, the, tell them to use Well, if they didn't tell me, then they obviously wouldn't throw it in. And clue objects here, team. Examine each with care and make your choice. They guide you to the altar, upon which are a dagger, a bunch of grapes, an old jar of honey, and a forked stick. The grapes go in the knapsack, and Treyguard instructs the team to inspect the honey pot. And when you do... Oh, yes, it's honey, all right, Stuart. I should put the top back on quickly because something here likes honey very much. Without any other clues, the team decide to take the honey and the dagger. We need to talk about this, don't we, Stuart? <laughs> yeah. The elephant in the room. Yes. Our understanding is that every team gets sent the, what's it called, Martin? 
the Adventurer's Code, or the rules, if you want to be specific. Yeah. And one of the stipulations in the Adventurer's Code is you shouldn't use the weapons of your enemies, and any weapon should be considered a weapon of your enemy without any other clue to the contrary. Yeah, well, this was news to me, mate. Well, you were not one who didn't receive a copy of the Adventurer's Code, because some of the Dungeoneers say they did, some Dungeoneers say they didn't. It's actually becoming a, a bit of a bone of contention, this, because if some people didn't receive it, then they're not being fairly treated. I could 99% say I didn't receive it. I still have every letter they sent to me, like the acceptance letter, and that had some information on it. I've looked through that recently, and there's, there's nothing there. I don't remember receiving anything when I got there. Now, whether one of my teammates was given it, and he just put it down somewhere. For 30 years, I've never known about this code. Now, I've watched an episode before mine, and Treyguard just say to one or two of the adventurers about not taking weapons. There is still the fundamental logic that you can re retreat into if, if you bypass the matter of the adventurer's code. What use is a dagger to somebody who's got a blindfold? The other thing is, game logic states that if one of the items is as out of place as a forked stick from a tree, that's probably the correct item but i recognized it i knew it wasn't just a stick i knew it was a divining rod ah right i was quite into paranormal things as a child so i knew what the item was but obviously i didn't push for it to be used they asked me what i think we should take i believe i say between the pot and the dagger in it so obviously i'm thinking oh we'll take the stick the same question that we ask about the dagger what use is it to someone blindfold yeah I suppose you could just as easily ask the same question about what appears to be a stick uh, what, what use is that going to be to somebody who's blindfold <laughs> so, but that would be treating both items as weapons is the weapon rule specific to nightmare or is it more general rule in fantasy I think it's specific to nightmare yeah I'm, I'm pretty sure when I'm playing Dungeons and Dragons I take any weapon that's going <laughs> but yeah it's, I think it's specific to nightmare because of it being a children's show I've never known it being specified anywhere else I'm pretty sure it's specific to nightmare which only makes it even more unfair if you haven't got a copy of the adventurer's code but anyway you did take the honey and the dagger 30 years ago you should be ashamed every day for 30 years <laughs> he's such a bully this man he's such a bully i'm always trying to protect any guests that we have from his crude and vicious uh, verbal assaults but he just he just keeps coming out with them i'm sorry Stuart. i i i are oh, you the amount of stuff I have had to cut of this. I don't know how what to make of this, but the, uh, the day after <laughs> you asked me to come on this, I was walking my dog, and he comes back with anything he can find. And the day after you, what did he bring back to me? A, a forked stick. A, a divining rod. No yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I kept it in the shed. Even my dog's taken the <laughs> It'll forever haunt you. Yeah. Where am I? You're in a room and there's a kind of soldier in front of you. Oh, an intruder in the level I see. Much lootings, I am thinking. Uh, lootings first, then the pillagings next. It's everybody's favourite insensitive nationalistic stereotype. Olaf the Viking. We've been through the uh, problems with this character on several occasions, so uh, we won't uh, go into too much detail here. But ignoring the racial sensitivity, Mr. H, what else do you make of, of Olaf? I think Tom Carroll, despite everything, is excellent. He brings a brilliant sense of likability to the character, even though he's technically uh, an enemy 
and threatening violence to children. Well, there's no sense of threat from him at all, though, is there, though? Because this scene actually demonstrates that he's got absolutely zero poker face. If you listen to him at the start, he's basically rehearsing standard strategic procedure while on guard duty, while standing in front of the very person he's guarding against. So it actually makes him look even more stupid than usual. So, on the other hand, I will say this. You got honey! It's one of my all-time favourite line deliveries in Nightmare. Whenever I think of the programme being on it, that's always the first room that comes to mind. I just thought it was so funny at the time. Oh, listen carefully when Olaf is explaining that he will eat the honey first and then hits you on the head. As with the scene with Lilith last week, you get to hear a beeping noise on someone's watch again. Editing errors! Yes, good, good, good. (laughs) Olaf, have the honey first, then he thump you on the head. Sorry, orders is the orders. <laughs> but of course, when Olaf opens the honey. What is this buzzing? Hey, 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 Doors, there's four doors, and that's about all. The choice is choices. The trouble is, no clues at all, and no way of divining them. What a pity you didn't bring the divining rod instead of that silly dagger. Now you'll just have to guess. It's the four doors chamber. It's unusual to see it in its basic form so late in the quest, but here we are. Trigger berates the team for taking the dagger instead of the divining rod. With no other clues, the team choose the centre right door. Oh, we seem to have been here before. Hurry, team, a life force is most unhealthy. It's the four doors chamber. It's unusual to see it in its basic form so late in a quest, but here we are. With no other clues, the team choose the far right door. The life force energy critical, you have just seconds! It's the four dots chamber. It's unusual to see it in its basic form so late in the quest, but here we are. With no other clues, the team choose to go back through the door they came through. Treyguard reminds them that there is no turning back, and before they can take any other action... What forwards? Stop! Go to your left! Starvation can be so debilitating. You're out, I'm afraid, boys. But then again, at least you're off this dungeon roundabout. Yeah, the team are clearly in losing status at this point, and it really means that no matter which door they choose, they're going to wind up back in the same chamber. Well, you do have another first, Stuart. Although you were in losing status, you were technically the first team to starve to death. Yeah, I'll take that. Congratulations. I, I don't agree <laughs> with that. This is basically it's the same as a lock-in in Crystal Maze or, or, or whatever. If you count this as the life force clock running out, you might just as well count teams one and five in season one as well, or, or even Mogdred's playpen um, in the middle of season season two the truth is so long as you are not in losing status the life force clock won't run out it's purely there as a psychological thing to push teams along and to make it look like they need to hurry up they could have tricked us and put us into another room and then make it a bomb room with a short fuse i think when we were playing at the time i think we believed we had a one in four chance going somewhere but that was scuppered because normally between rooms you'd have a one or two hour wait 
while they reset the next room. With this, it was two minutes. <laughs> That's a bit of a giveaway, isn't it? Still, you got a decent way into level two. It's a respectable quest. Do you think if I'd if we'd have got through that door, it would have been the well, or would have been another room or two? It's interesting. There was no Merlin scene, was there? Um, the level two clue room is usually about two or three rooms into level two and then the uh, Merlin's chamber is shortly after that usually the halfway point I think it's getting a bit late to have a Merlin chamber to be perfectly honest there might have been some kind of the veil scene maybe or some kind of confrontation with one of the dungeon gods there'd been no Cedric either maybe Cedric would have turned up later in the level maybe he'd have been the guards to, to the wellway again why not cast the power spell and see what happens we just dismissed it but looking back nothing to lose really was there Probably not, though. No. Mm. There's some interesting speculations about it down the years. There was a board game for Nightmare in 1991. Me, uh, my brother, and a friend about 20-odd years ago, we created a set of advanced rules for it because there is a, a necromancer who's one of the in-game characters in that. Um, and one of the things you can do in the game is you can do a deal with the necromancer. One of the spells he can give you, there's one spell called Power, another spell called Glory, and a third one which is called Dragon Ride. And what happens to the Power spell, it makes you extremely strong initially but the necromancer takes power or strength away from you throughout subsequent turns so you might win you might lose but uh, it's going to get more and more difficult to win the longer you take i don't know where this idea came from but i've always had in back of my mind from finishing the game and talking to tim and saying goodbye that it was suggested that it would have made me really really big like fill the screen or something i don't know how that would have worked out or helped but oh, that, boy, that might have just been somebody pulling a leg it might have been a way of portraying you getting crushed to death because you become too big for the chamber do you think that if you had got further and met Cedric at the next wellway do you think you'd be a bit wary of him considering what happened before well, obviously I'd have said nothing wouldn't I that's very humble of you so Traegard dismisses the team and we see them joining you on the path home farewell Stuart Neil Gregory and Neil a valiant attempt but those who arm themselves with the weapons of their enemies are ever likely to fail. So what was the aftermath of your appearance on the show? Did you get bragging rights at school? We recorded during the summer holiday. So when we went back to school, most people didn't believe us. So that gives you a lot of bragging rights when the actual episode gets broadcast. And it gets aired in October, November, and everybody's, Oh, was that you? We saw you on telly, we saw you. They were quite popular, a handful of people. Oh, you didn't do very well, that was rubbish, but we didn't care. We had a good time. I think your team genuinely seemed like a good team. It was just really that one slip up. Yeah, it's interesting how they edit things as well, really, because there's a few rooms where we were definitely took longer to get anywhere than it showed. The riddles in the previous episode, thing on screen, we asked for the first one twice. But in reality, we asked for all of them to be repeated. And you never know how other teams have edited it as well. So. Oh, yeah, we can be pretty sure of that. We've uh, explored the uh, the conspiracy theories surrounding Akash quite a bit, not guessing a single riddle right. So moving swiftly on, Stuart, here's your chance to have your say about the team after you. Ah, name yourself, please. Jamie Wilkinson. Very well, Jamie. Call your advisors and let them introduce themselves. Paul, Saranja and Joey. So we have Dungeoneer Jamie, who is joined by advisors Joseph, Paul and Sanjit, who all hail from Leeds. We should probably point out that despite the rumours, Jamie is not former MP Jamie Reid. Mr. Reid once claimed on Twitter that he was a former Nightmare contestant, but this turned out to be a good-natured joke, which we can all agree was hysterically funny. He was lying 
after Akash and Tanya three weeks back, we now have Saranjit, who's a Sikh. And it is good to see ethnic minorities getting represented this season because the first season's lineup of contestants was a bit whitewashed. British TV still had a way to go when it came to inclusiveness in the late 80s, but this is still a considerable step up from the 70s. Trigger gives the rules rundown and sends Jamie on his way. It's the ledge crossing stop. Sitting on the ledge with his feet dangling over the side is Folly. You could say that Folly is on the edge of the ledge. Don't push me because I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to fall off that ledge. Uh, Yo, when the sun jumps in time, it makes me wonder how I keep them going under. The jester finally notices Jamie and goes full double-barreled folly on him. Oh, hello, hello, hello. And what can this be, I ask myself? Is it a donkey? No, no, it's got horns, not ears. Is it a beastie then? A wild beastie from the darkest depths. Oh, dearie me, I'm scared. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, oh, no, of course not. It's none of those. It's a bold dungeoneer, that's what it is. Oh, you, what a relief. Fully eventually calms down and poses a riddle to the team. King and queen and ace and knave, one of which will not behave. Tell them from your learning arts, which of them stole the tarts? Who the hell needs learning arts to know the answer to that? Well, we know it's not the knave because he stole the toads. It's rather irritating. This riddle is just a retread of the Tarts Toads thing with Gretel in Quest 4. So despite one of the advisors interrupting the riddle and talking over folly... Which of them did you have stole the tarts? The team do correctly state it was the knave that stole the tarts. That's probably one riddle that we might have got right first time. Knave. <gasps> Gosh, you're bright. That's quite right. The knave of hearts it was. Then he was a red knave, but afterwards, when he was caught red-handed, he became a black knave. Black Jack, they called him, which is, of course, the name of the game. A game which, in your case, is well worth playing. Now, don't let me keep you. Puzzle, peril, rhyme and song. Don't tarry while the quest is on. Yeah, quite right for once, Folly. Come on, team, get moving. With this clue, the team move on. Where am I? In a bomb with a room and it's... The food here, team, but the fuse is running. I had to watch this back like five times to make sure he actually said what I thought he said. You're in a bomb with a room in it. Oh, well. Cue the jingle. Okay, I've got to have a little rant here, okay, because this has got to be some of the most inexcusable misanimation ever here. You actually watch the bomb. We've, we've, we've gone over many times before the problem with fuses growing back. This one just goes hyperactive with it. I was so disgusted this morning, I actually replayed it several times so I could count the number of times the fuse grows back. It does it 29 times during the sequence, possibly even more. And I don't understand why they're doing it, but it's constantly going... 
and it just it just keeps on doing it. It just keeps on going backwards and forwards between the same sequence. They may have done it because they wanted to make it look a bit more alive by constantly having the fuse seesawing backwards and forwards between two stages. But it still looks like cheating, especially at one point. It actually jumps back two stages. It looks terrible. It really does. The bomb rooms are frequently annoying for this reason, but here it's just taken to the ultimate level, and it is unforgivably bad to watch. Yeah, they clearly didn't want them to die in that room. There's no reason why they have to, though. You could just leave it burning and just occasionally move it on to the next phase. It's the thing about we're always growing backwards um, when you're not in losing status. Mm. It really, really makes my teeth itch. Or even have the thing where the fuse doesn't light first time. That would be fun. Yeah, we had that one in a, in a recent episode where you had to, you could hear somebody sort of fiddling with a lighter. That would be better. But this, as I say, just, if you actually watch it, just count the number of times it grows back. It's absolutely astonishing that they think that, that works. Don't buy fireworks from Broadsword. <laughs> <laughs> The team also pick up the food, by the way. <laughs> oh, yes, 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 yes. Of course they do. Where am I? You're in a room, and there's three doors at the end of the room. Right. There's, um... Ah, it seems as though someone has dealt you a hand, team, though goodness knows what game you're playing. The doors ahead are locked. <laughs> to open them... Look at the card on the floor. It's rather an odd one, don't you think? I've said this so many times, but I really love the effect of the cards flying in. It looks terribly dated now, but that kind of adds to the charm to it, of it in a way. This time the doors are blocked by the Jack of Spades, the Queen of Hearts and the King of Diamonds. Taking notice of Folly's clue, the team guide Jamie to step on the spade symbol, removing the Jack and thus unlocking the left door. I think they're quite a good team so far. They're calm, giving good instructions. Yeah, they seem quite good so far. They're not too argumentative or anything, which helps. Yeah, I hate them teams. This- <laughs> <laughs> it is in its early stages though the real pressure isn't on yet where am i you're in a big red room with two exits there's a blank wall in front of you and there's a table with some objects on it in the middle jamie has found his way to the level one clue room on the table this time are a gauntlet half an orange or grapefruit a jar marked humbugs and a money pouch marked small change before they can examine the objects further, Igneous stirs. I am Igneous of legend. Face me or perish. Please me or depart in ignorance. Look out, Jamie. There's something behind you and I don't think you're going to like it. Better turn and face him or her. I'm never quite sure what sex they are. Stuart, do you fancy reading some of these riddles out? Yeah, I can do. Earn my money. What? What? People are getting paid for this. <laughs> what, where where do I? No, he hasn't paid me. We've done sixteen episodes. He hasn't paid me once. You swindler! I'll pay you when you do some bloody work. Oh well, that's being very pedantic. <laughs> if you ask me. Hello, listeners. Just to clear it up, we didn't really pay Stuart. It's all just a little joke. Quick and red was I when my mother gave me birth. Downwards I flowed, ever colder, ever blacker. Rock I am now. What was my mother? Very easy one. And they don't have any problems with it. Answer straight away, volcano. Truth accepted. Volcano. Truth accepted. Here is my second. I have the knowledge of centuries. 
My wisdom is beyond price. You are puny and ignorant. How much are your thoughts worth? The answer is a penny, because it's based on the saying a penny for your thoughts. Traegar does give his customary clue here, and I'm not sure if the team would have answered correctly without it, but it is a well-spoken riddle, I think. So interesting, in some parts of US culture, the, the saying is a dollar for your thoughts, believe it or not, but obviously not appropriate in this context. Nightmare was shown on uh, US TV in the early 1990s, and I can imagine one or two Americans might have been yelling at the screen, No, it's a dollar! A dollar! <laughs> Dollars didn't exist back then, guys. It didn't. I'm sorry. A penny for your thoughts. Truth accepted. Here is my third. Adam was the first man. Eve was the first woman. But who was the first zookeeper? They really shouldn't have needed the clue here. No, although it has to be said the clue was way too strong and a total giveaway anyway. Oh, really, team? Who saved the animals? If it says Adam was the first man, Eve was the first woman, it's a reference to the Bible. So the answer is also going to be something in the Bible. And, well, who else was there but Noah? I don't mind giving clues, but when you're going to get three out of three correctly, I think it's a bit generous. I agree. I agree. I think given they'd already had a bit of a clue for the second one, and they were already two from two, he really should have left that one alone. What did you think to my riddles in the previous? The second one, I still wouldn't have got today if you'd have asked me. The galley. My feeling about uh, several of them was that the answers were ambiguous. Yeah, and have you, have you ever seen Robin Hood with a hood? No, certainly. That's exactly what we were saying. I've never seen a version of him with a hood, except Maid Marian and a Merry Man. There was a recent Robin Hood film with Tyra and Edgerton on it, and he mm. does wear a hood. The thing is, though, the hood in Robin Hood's title actually refers to him being a thief. Yeah, that's what I thought. Noah! Truth accepted! But this team does score three, and Igneous tells them that their quest is for the crown, and that good humbugs have a useful bite to them. The team have a perfect score, and so command the wall monster. Igneous offers the further clue that small change is often enough. Jamie takes the food, the change, and the humbugs before leaving. Turn left. Stop. Walk forward. Hold it, team, for now time turns and holds you in its grip. In this case, temporal disruption spells destination unknown for Jamie and friends. And now watchers must wait a while. Join us again soon for a nightmare. Unless, of course, you dare to miss it. An orange in the dungeon below a medieval castle. It's a temperate zone. Yeah, <laughs> I was waiting for you to say that. That is temporal disruption. What do we make of the episode? Well, the dungeoneer for the first half is a bit sh. Oh, I, 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 I was so glad when they got rid of him. My God, he was. Yeah, I had to fast forward. Oh, my goodness. His advisors were all right. Don't get me wrong, the advisors were okay. But I mean, honestly, the the, uh, the, the guy, uh, he was so unresponsive. Um, mm. And he was and he was such a. He was so stiff. What do you think of him, Stuart? <laughs> well, he was okay, apart from his trousers. That's a point we didn't make. We didn't. We, we, we felt to pick up on as well his trousers were just so 1983 <laughs> you know I'm, oh goodness me i've seen them before because they weren't my trousers it's the wrong trousers comic whose trousers were they were they robin hood's trousers uh, no well they told us obviously not to wear blue i think they were white before i took but they didn't show up very well so they took me to the costume department oh okay and they fitted but i've seen them since i've seen them on other episodes so they're obviously <laughs> Obviously, they didn't know that I'd crap myself. 
when I met him. <laughs> that is the unfortunate thing about wearing white, isn't it? <laughs> Give me a minute. <laughs> We're going to have so many interesting discussions on the Nightmare Forums over the next few weeks. Oh, my word. Uh, okay, it's trying to be serious for a moment. Just sort of semi-serious, anyway. I think the most interesting aspect of the episode by far is the decision to do an Anakin Skywalker, which no other team ever did, of course, probably because they saw this episode. There are some slight sort of variants to the floor puzzles here and there, but otherwise, I'd say this is pretty par for the course stuff. You got Mogjed trying to corrupt a dungeoneer, Tregard getting frozen in his seat by a dungeon character's magic, Olaf making a dolt of himself on guard duty, Folly talking in rhymes before giving a free clue, and a team getting um, eliminated about halfway through level two. It's basically it's everything that's happened everywhere before. There's no character development of any particular notes. There's nothing that stands out as particularly unusual bar the decision to do a deal with Monk Dread. The episode's entirely watchable, but more than any other season two episode, it's also probably the most dispensable. Everything that happens in it, pretty much you'll find somewhere else. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting new room, though. Yeah. It's just a shame that it didn't really get any real chance to shine. It, used, it was like a one and done thing. Yeah, it is a slight variant of a floor puzzle. And it's probably too early to comment much on this current team, but... um. They seem okay. They're entirely competent. If you do get to speak to Tim, could you ask him to post me that adventurous code, please? (laughs) Okay. So anyway, I think that's all we've got time for for this episode of Temporal Discussion. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at NightmarePod. If you want to support the podcast, we're NightmarePod on Patreon and Ko-fi. And speaking of Patreon, here's a shout out to Keeper of the Book of Quests, David N. Rabbit, Advisor, Peter Pulsford, and Dungeoneer David Thompson. Support us on Patreon at Dungeoneer level or above to get your name mentioned in the podcast. Our website is nightmarepod.co.uk. You can email us at podcast at nightmarepod.co.uk. Martin, you got anything you want to plug? Nothing. Stuart, do you want to plug anything? Do you want to like give out your Twitter account or anything like that? Yeah, if anybody wants to ask any questions, my Twitter hat, Stewie the Fish, S-T-U-E-Y the fish don't ask why thank you very much for joining us as well Stuart. it's been a, it's been a very very revealing contribution from you especially the bits about the trousers and what was inside them it's been an absolute pleasure yeah so until next time don't have nightmares just watch them instead yes ma'am